Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Extraordinary Talk Show this happy Monday. Let's jump right into this. We're still at the beginning of a new year, guys, and there's a lot that goes along with that, especially with a year that's called 2020. It really, whenever I say that, it makes me want to have a really clear vision about what's going on in my life, in my world, and in me. And hopefully, you have some similar types of things. I have a big question today to ask you. And for you to ask yourself, because honestly, let's be straight up, I don't expect you to know the answer to this question. Maybe you do. My question is that I want you to ask deeply, who are you? And the reason, there's a lot of reasons why you want to know the answer to that question. One is I believe that that is the first of three great questions that we must ask ourselves in this life. Who are you? Who is God? And what is my relationship to God? Those are the three big questions. We'll talk about those more some other time. But also, when you're beginning a new year, when you're trying to figure out what your goals are, what your life purpose is maybe, what do you want out of life? It might be a good idea to start by figuring out who you are. Do you know already? Do you think you know? And are you right? Maybe you don't know who you are as well as you think you do. When I ask this question, a couple things come to my mind. One is the song, the Who Are You song, that you just kind of hear in your head when you hear that question. Another is a scene from the movie Anger Management with Adam Sandler and Jack Nicholson. And this is a good 20 years old. But there's a scene when Adam Sandler, his character's name is Dave, is attending group therapy. And the therapist, played by Jack Nicholson, asks him to introduce himself and says, tell us, who are you? And Dave's reaction, first of all, he says, well, I, uh, I go to work as an executive assistant and I do this and this. And the therapist interrupts him and says, hang on, Dave, that's what you do. But who are you? Well, Dave kind of pulls himself together again and says, well, uh, you know, I like to play softball. And he goes on about some of the things that he likes to do. And the therapist interrupts him again and says, hang on, Dave, those are your hobbies. We want to know who are you? And at that point, Dave gets kind of frustrated and he's like, well, uh, I don't really know what you're looking for here. Maybe some other people could tell me what their answers were. And the therapist says, do you really want these other people to tell you who you are? Dave's more frustrated now and he starts telling more things about himself. And the the therapist says, hang on, Dave, that's your personality. We want to know who are you? At which point Dave loses his temper which may be what the therapist was pushing him to all along. If somebody asked you, who are you, and really dug deep, would you be able to come up with the answers? Would you lose your temper in trying to be able to find answers to that question? There's a lot of parts of who we are. Your job, what you do, your occupation, your hobbies, your personality, traits about you, your behavior, your attributes, your ideas, your thoughts, your desires, your priorities. These are all facets of you. And each part of these things make up who you are. But remember, it's always, always malleable. Nothing is ever fixed. Nothing is ever permanent. Everything can go any direction. Now, we've talked 
before in the past about how the first few years of your life, your brain actually like from in utero up through about age seven, your brain is constantly in alpha and delta wavelengths. Now, if you'll remember, the four basic brain wavelengths are beta, which is when you're alert, awake, thinking actively. Alpha, which is when you're alert, but kind of chilled out, having passive thought, maybe watching TV, listening to music. Um, Your thought is less active. In... And then you have delta which, um, and theta. And delta is the brainwave that we pass through when we're falling asleep, going to theta, and waking up. Going, when you're asleep, you're in theta. When you wake up, you pass through delta, then alpha, then beta wide awake. So we all pass through delta. Every adult passes through delta at least twice a day if you're sleeping. But children don't get that wide awake beta thinking yet. They're only in alpha and delta. And the fun thing about alpha and delta is the brain is much more malleable in alpha and delta. This is one reason why meditation is so helpful in setting goals and making yourself better. Because if you're meditating on the things about yourself that you want to improve, if you think about it in beta, you're going to make progress if you do it long enough eventually. If you meditate on those things, it's going to pull you into alpha. When you're, in, when you're meditating, you go into alpha and sometimes deeper. And when you're meditating on those questions, how do I be better? What can I do to be better? Focusing on the things that you're going to do better. During meditation, when you're in alpha, your brain is much more malleable. The chemicals flow so much more smoothly. It helps you rewrite those processes and firm the processes that you want to have firmed if you do that in meditation when you're in alpha. So as children ages utero up to about seven, our brains are only in alpha and delta, that malleable place, that rideable place. For children, that's actually when their brains are developing, growing, becoming what they're going to be. And in that malleable place, just like when you meditate, if you insert a new idea into your meditation, into that alpha wavelength, it's going to stick longer, it's going to have better effect. When kids are kids, when you were a child, your brain was putty up through those years. The environment around you was critical in making you who you are. Things that you heard, things that you saw, things that you experienced were downloaded into your brain and written as processes. And this is really interesting because our brains are fascinating in that our brain can only recognize and acknowledge a process that it knows. And what this means is if you have never played piano, have never played music, have never learned to read music, if you look at a sheet of music, it's gobbledygook. It means nothing to you. That's a process that you have not learned. It doesn't mean anything to you. Once you learn to read music, that page, you can even look at it and hear the music when you understand it well enough. That takes a process that had to be learned to be written into the brain so that that brain could see, recognize, and replicate that process. This is why when you know somebody that annoys the heck out of you, chances are the thing that they're doing that is annoying you is something that you also do. 
Because if you did not have that active process in your brain, you would not be able to recognize it in someone else. Does that make sense? For example, going back to the piano, before the piano was created, we had the harpsichord, and before that, I'm not sure what led up to that, but it was not part of anyone's brain. If you go back five, 600 years ago, before we had those instruments, no one had those brain processes. No one could learn to play the piano because the piano didn't exist. Somebody had to start step-by-step building brain processes, building a piano, building music, and that has spread across the world so that now millions and millions of people have those same brain processes. But a few hundred years ago, those brain processes didn't exist. These brain processes, these patterns that we learn, many of which, the foundation of which are embedded in childhood, childhood are still active and being written for us now. And the programs that we wrote into our brain or had written into our brain as children are still active, are still running in our brains now. Which means that if when you were a child, you and your father played catch a lot, it was a hobby that you enjoyed, it was something that you loved, you have brain patterns, brain processes built into you based on that. And you're going to have a few of them. One of them is you might love baseball because you have that brain process connected to playing baseball with your dad. You might be more motivated to spend time with your family because your family spent time with you. These are processes that are going to play out subconsciously, whether you realize it or not. Now, if you had an absolutely perfect textbook, amazing, wonderful childhood, and you were only told amazing, unconditionally loving types of things, then those are the processes that you learned. And perhaps you might have amazing skills to be able to function in this life and and do amazing things, but chances are that's not what happened because that doesn't happen that way for pretty much anybody. All of us get processes that help us learn, that help us grow, that help us function, but not all of those processes are entirely beneficial. And even if they're good, they might not be the best. And if you want to be the best, you have to look at what can be improved. Now, in the book, Good to Great, it tells us the enemy of great is good because very often things are good enough so we don't push them, we don't test them, we don't upgrade them. Good is the enemy of great. If you find things in yourself that are good, wonderful. But remember, those things can be upgraded. When we talk about our brain patterns, it used to be thought that once your brain was developed by the age of 25 to 35, you were cooked. That was who you are. That was your personality. That's who you were going to be as long as you lived. We now know that that's not the way it is. We now know that your brain processes can be upgraded, can be rewritten, can be played out differently by you. But how do you do that? You have to recognize what your patterns are. These patterns are what makes you you. These patterns affect your ideas. They affect your thought processes. They affect what you're motivated by. They affect what you put as priorities. These are the pieces, the facets that make you you. And remember, when you're looking at, say, diamonds, 
when I talk about a facet, a facet is a side. A, a square, a cube has six facets. It only has six sides. A diamond can have hundreds of facets. When you look at yourself, your personality, who you are as a diamond, look at all of those facets. What is your job? That's one facet. What are your hobbies? That's one facet. How do you react when something aggravates you? That's one facet. What are your emotional responses when life happens? That's one facet. And so in order to be aware of who you are, you kind of have to look at all of the facets of who you are. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Lifebook. And Lifebook is a goal system, a goal program that helps you really look at your life and figure out what you want. It's done by Mind Valley, and I highly recommend it. John and Missy Butcher are the facilitators, and they know their stuff. They created this, and they've used it to have tremendous success in their own lives. And in Lifebook, one, one of the things that you have to do is evaluate 13 different areas of your life. These are physical, intellectual, emotional, character, spiritual, romantic, parenting, social, financial, career, quality of life, life vision, and sex. These are 13 areas of your life that are facets of who you are. And in order to really understand who you are, you can look at each of these 13 things and ask yourself questions about them. And guys, I highly recommend doing this. And I, if you want to take the Lifebook course, highly recommend it. If you don't want to do all of that and you want to do the work on your own, great. That's absolutely an option. Look at these 13 areas and then ask yourself questions about those areas, such as, what do I believe about this? What do I want in this area? And this one, when it comes to blank, fill in that facet, I am a person who, answer that question. When it comes to my character, I am a person who believes this, does these things, wants these things. And as you look at the very basics of each facet of your personality, you will gain a deeper understanding of who you are, of yourself. And as you do that, you will be able to fine tune, pick out the pieces that you're not happy with and upgrade them. You all know how to eat a whale, right? One bite at a time. And if you look at a whale and go, whoa, that's a lot to eat. It can be really, really overwhelming. You have to break it down into bites. And you don't start on bite 30. You don't start on bite four. You don't start on bite two. You start on bite one. And that means asking yourself the question, who am I? And even asking that question, can seem so overwhelming. And if I'm talking about doing this, if I'm encouraging you to, to look into yourself, to ask yourself these questions about yourself, and if you're feeling fear when I encourage you to do that, if I say, hey, you should write these questions down and answer them, and you go, eh, I don't think that, uh, that's not my thing, I don't think so. 
Or if you kind of want to, but you're also afraid to. What that means is that it's outside of your comfort zone to have to look yourself deep in the soul. It can be hard enough to sometimes meet your own eyes in the mirror. And what I'm asking you to do is look deep inside yourself at every aspect of your character, every facet of your personality. And if that puts you outside of your comfort zone, that's amazing. You should welcome that. Because outside of your comfort zone is where the magic happens. Don't be afraid. It's okay to be afraid, but conquer that fear anyway. Are you too afraid of yourself? Are you too afraid to look inside of yourself? Now you might, if you're like a lot of people, deep inside, if you're really, really, really honest with yourself, Maybe you don't like yourself. Maybe you're afraid that if you look deeper, you're going to find things about yourself that you don't like. And you know what? That can be scary. But also, let's say you have a recipe for cookies. And they're pretty good cookies, but they're not as good as they could be. You like this recipe, so you don't want to entirely throw the recipe away. But you want to make the cookies better. So what you've got to do is look at the ingredients. Look at how much of each thing it calls for and then make substitutions. You might look at the wheat flour and say, okay, I'm going to substitute that for almond flour. Whatever. But you have to look at the pieces that make up the whole in order to make any change. And this can be scary, guys. But if it's scary, that's telling you that it's worth doing. If it's scary for you, that means it's outside of your comfort zone and that's where you got to go to make the magic happen. And if you're one of those people that kind of doesn't like yourself, maybe you're afraid to do some introspection and find more things that you don't like yourself, I'm going to challenge you because I want to know why you don't like yourself. What is it about you that you don't like? If you answered these questions, what is it about you, your character that you like, that you don't like? Why? What do you believe about that? What do you want differently from that? Because when, when you break all these things down, if you break down the bites one by one into little teeny tiny pieces... You might get down to those pieces, those facets of yourself that you don't like, but maybe the reason you don't like them is because you haven't looked that close at them. Take the challenge. Look close and see if you're worth not liking. If you already don't like yourself, I hope you have a good reason. And if you are willing to look deeper look at the facets of your personality that are causing you to not like yourself, you might find that there's something there worth liking. You might find that there's nothing there worth disliking. You might find that what you think is a lump of coal is actually a diamond with hundreds of glowing, shining, reflective, beautiful facets. But if you don't look You don't know. 
if you don't like yourself and you're not willing to look deep inside at the things that you don't like, you don't have an excuse to not like yourself. If you don't like something about yourself and you're willing to continue holding on to that thing that you don't like, that's only up to you. Nobody can make you change that. Nobody can motivate you to change that. Nobody can make you like who you are. Only you can do that. And if you are willing to take the challenge, why don't you like yourself? What is it about you that you don't like? Why don't you like you? Because that's a really big deal. You know, if you're going to not like another person, you should probably have a good reason why you don't like that other person. But if you don't like you, you better have a really good reason why you don't like you. And if you can't, or even if you can clearly spell out what you don't, if you can clearly spell out what you don't like, wonderful, now you know what to change. And if you can't spell out what you don't like, it's time to find out. So one, you can at least be telling the truth when you say you don't like yourself and have a good reason why. And two, so you know what things you should improve in order to recognize the beauty that's in you all the time. Now, let me talk for just a minute on those first three questions. Who are you? Who is God? And what is your relationship with God? These are questions that have come to me in my own meditation, in my own thought processes. And I'm not going to answer those questions for you. I can't tell you who you are. I can't tell you who God is to you, and I can't tell you what your relationship is to God. Like Shel Silverstein said, no teacher, preacher, parent, friend, or wise man can decide what's right for you. Just listen to the voice that speaks inside. But I do believe, friends, that while we're here in this life, three big questions that we need to answer are who am I, who or what is God, and what is my relationship to that? And as you are able to begin answering these questions, you will find answers to other parts of life. How can you know what your life purpose is, which so many of us want to know, if you don't know who you are? If you don't know what your skills, talents are, if you don't know what skills and talents you want to accomplish and achieve and build and grow, how can you expect to make those improvements? And as you come to understand who you are, I hope that you search to understand who or what God is. And again, I can't answer that question for you. For a couple of reasons. One, I'm still answering these questions for myself. Two, no one can tell you who you are. Only you can do that. No one can speak to you and tell you who or what God is and what your relationship with that is. 
A lot of people have tried. I'm not trying to tell you what to think. I'm only encouraging you to think for yourself. I can't tell you the answers to these questions, but I encourage you to ask them for yourself, to look for the answers. I can't tell you what your life purpose is. I can't tell you why you're here. Only you can do that. No teacher, preacher, parent, friend, or wise man can decide what's right for you. Just listen to that voice that speaks inside. No one else can answer those questions for you. And if you desire fulfillment, joy, happiness in this life, I encourage you to begin asking these questions. I love questions. The answer doesn't have to come immediately. You don't have to expect the answer to be there as soon as you ask the question. But one thing that I've learned and one thing that I promise you is if you ask the question, the answers come. My friends, I love you. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to The Extraordinary Talk Show.